0: Episode 28 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, Aviation and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin, and I'm your host. Today, I'm talking with Greg Mink, a.k.a. Premier One Driver from YouTube. We're telling his story, how he got into aviation, what it's like to own a business and be in business aviation. Some of the things that we talk about in today's episode are how Greg's dad got Greg into aviation, how he was flying before he could drive himself to the airport, what it's like going from an aero to a high-performance multi-engine aircraft, how we both thought we were hot stuff flying a Seneca, and how Top Gun pushed Greg towards the Air National Guard. Aviation, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy it, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can support us on Patreon. We're three away from 30, which is our goal of 2017, to get 30 Patreon supporters. So go ahead and support us there. Remember, if you support us on Patreon, we will be choosing a winner for our giveaway in January. The winner will get either a four-flight subscription, a Fly to Wear subscription, and some Fly to Wear swag. So you do not want to miss out on that. Also, you can email us at pilotthepilothq@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And leave us any reviews or comments or just get to know us better on Instagram, pilot the pilot Which brings me to our third and final goal that we have at pilot the pilot for the year of 2017. That is to reach 10,000 followers on Instagram. So please go ahead and share this podcast. Go and share this with everyone you know. Help us make that happen as that will help us reach a greater and a wider audience. Aviation, without further ado, here's Greg Mink. Hey, Greg. Thanks for coming on the pilot the pilot podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's a, a real joy to be here and a lot of fun.
0: No problem. I'm glad I get you on. I know I've had a lot of people message me trying to get you to come on, and our schedule's finally worked out, so here we go. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So the first question I ask everyone is, what got you into aviation? Well,
1: I, I came into aviation by default. My, uh, my dad and I had uh, raced motocross when I was uh, growing up, so all through middle school and into high school. And I had gotten injured, so my dad and I were looking for something else to do uh, as an activity together. And uh, we were sitting around at dinner one night. And he says, hey, guess what I did today? And I said, what's that? He says, I bought an airplane. So he had <laughs> gone out and uh, bought a Cessna 172, and uh, we started our flight training basically that, that week.
0: That's crazy. So it was a complete surprise that he bought an airplane. Did he ever talk about aviation in the past or ever want to get into it? Or did he just surprise the family saying, hey, we got an airplane, let's go fly?
1: So when he was younger, he actually had taken some lessons and didn't have the financial means to, to finish it off. So I think he had some latent interest uh, setting there. And like any, I guess I was probably 15 years old at the time. Uh, to me, anything with a motor was cool. So a motor and a propeller was like a double bonus. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I was all in from that moment on. So I remember the first time taxiing out in that Cessna 172 sitting in the left seat trying to steer the thing with the rudder pedals and thinking, (laughs) wow, am I ever going to be able to master this? Right. Right. And uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And both my dad and I did our, our training kind of in parallel with one another with the same instructor. So it was a nice little substitute to, to uh, get out of, what I was doing at the previous time, at the previous to that, which was motocross, and into something that was uh, hopefully a little more safe, <laughs> which I <laughs> yeah. think, is, which is what my parents' goal, I believe, at the time was.
0: Yeah, depending on how you look at it, they're they're both not the they both have their their troubles, but I'd say that flying is probably right. inherently a little bit safer than motocross.
1: Yes, I would agree with you. You don't and, have to worry probably, about all the I'm
0: other guys trying to to hit you and knock you down and right. break your bones,
1: right? Yeah, you save that for the, uh, for the main airport terminal.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, you save your, your shoulders and elbows for getting first in line at Southwest, right?
1: That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> well, cool. So did you and your dad have any kind of competitiveness going into training? Like did you want to get done before him or was it kind of you guys just helped each other out?
1: Well, I think there was a little bit of teenage exuberance on my part where I, I was 15 years old at the time and uh, so i was essentially flying before i could even drive myself to the airport that's awesome and yeah so i i think there's probably a, a a bit of a natural competition although a friendly competition and i'll have to say that my dad at the time i believe he was probably in his uh mid 30s and and he progressed along just almost as quickly as i did i obviously had a little more free time on my hands right. and i think that that's part of the, the benefit of, uh, or it's part of one of the one of the things that when people take lessons, they need to understand that the the uh, recurrency and the repetitiveness of being able to do it in shorter time frames is much more helpful than trying to do it once every couple of weeks. So right. I had that advantage over my father because he was working and I was just doing school basically, so a fair amount of free time. But yeah, there was there was a little bit of a natural competition between the two of us.
0: Who finished up first? Well,
1: I believe he finished up first and that was primarily because I had to wait till I was 17. Oh so yeah. <laughs> by the time I, uh, yeah, but by, by the time I took my check ride, which was, uh, uh, the day after my 17th birthday, uh, I think I had like 80 or 90 hours. I mean, I was so sick and tired of just flying myself around the pattern. I, I couldn't handle it anymore. So for me, it was, uh, just waiting until I made that. 17 year old milestone to take my check ride
0: yeah if i forgot about the rules and regulations that definitely slowed you down on that aspect it's probably good that they wait till you're a little bit older to take your private pilot check ride but i can understand why you'd be frustrated because you've trained for so long and what it was two years since you guys got the plane and you were just flying in the pattern trying to keep yourself current
1: yeah there's only so much you can do in the local area to entertain yourself right. you know you've here in Indianapolis, where I'm at, we've got the speedway. So there's only so many laps you can take around the speedway <laughs> looking at it that you go, okay, yeah, there's, there's four turns. There's two long straightaways and two short shoots. I've seen it like 20 times,
0: right? But, I can relate uh, to that because I did a lot of my training in Charlotte, North Carolina. We would fly over Charlotte Motor Speedway a lot and I'd kind of do the same thing, just fly around circles, just do some training over the speedway and all that. And then there's a local Delta there for Concord area. Yep. And then you could do your training out of there. And they actually have one of the coolest atc guys he's like a famous atc guy from charlotte approach and then he moved to the tower once he retired from charlotte approach if you ever get the chance to fly there and you get him you'll know exactly what i'm talking about some people listening might know exactly what i'm talking about but he's just crazy enthusiastic and like sings and it's just it's wild
1: oh that's awesome yeah that's great i I love it when guys do that kind of stuff
0: i know right you can i love it when you can just tell how much someone loves what they're doing
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: So going back to your training a little bit, you said that you had about two years to do it all. Did you have to do a lot of repeating lessons? I know you said that you flew in the pattern a lot. Did did you get like all your training done when you were 16 and then just kind of fly in the pattern or did you continually do stalls and maneuvers and ground lessons and stuff like that?
1: Well, I would go up with the instructor on occasion and just kind of you know, work the rust off of some of those other things that you just talked about, the steep turns and and some of those kind of things. But also at that time, my dad had actually transitioned from a student pilot to a private pilot. So he and I would fly together to uh, places and we'd fly from Indianapolis to Fort Wayne, which, you know, back in the day, I thought, oh, my gosh, Indianapolis to Fort Wayne is uh, you know, an hour-long flight, this is going to be so cool.
0: I know, right? And,
1: uh, like, you're really going somewhere, right? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I would sit in the right seat, he'd sit in the left seat, and he'd fly, and I'd work the radio. You know, kind of the early crew coordination thing in a 172, if there is such a thing. Right. So, you know, I got a fair amount of exposure to to moving across the country, even though it was only 75 nautical miles, but, <laughs> uh, you know, for a, for a student pilot or for a veteran pilot, you know, that's, that's, that's going somewhere.
0: It is. That's actually a, a that's relatively far cross country because I mean, a lot of mine when I did them and because I did my private pilot training at Ohio State. So I'd go from Ohio State to Finley a lot and I'm just like you. And yep. I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm flying so far. Like it's point seven here <laughs> and one hour on the way back. It's like I'm a time traveler. I thought it was so cool. But that's one of the things right. I love about like aviation and my path where I went to aerial survey is instead of becoming a flight instructor, I just got to travel the country and fly from destination to destination. And I felt like a pilot, you know, I'm not saying that CFIs don't feel like pilots or they shouldn't feel like pilots, but I just felt like I was doing, I was going to experience and using aviation to the best of its capabilities and exploring the country and, and dealing with FBOs, talking about fuel and talking to other pilots and just seeing what the road travels really like.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and point A to point B is what it's all about in flying. You know, it's, obviously there's pattern work and all that kind of stuff but when you go from Indianapolis to Fort Wayne or you know Columbus to to you know wherever Akron mm-hmm. you're covering some ground you're going someplace you've got a purpose right. and that's where aviation just really shines and that's where you really get a lot of enjoyment out of the whole thing
0: when i had to do stalls and maneuvers over and over again i kind of got frustrated but then i'd live for the cross countries where i actually got to experience like you said what aviation's all about right. Exactly, exactly. Did you have any struggles with your training at all? Did you struggle with a maneuver? did you struggle with landings? Do you just have any overall great stories from your private pilot check ride and from your training?
1: Well, it's funny how crosswind landings seem to be the, <laughs> uh, the thing that gets everybody see I, I say that and you actually start laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I do. So we were out we were out doing our, our training one day with my instructor and and it was a relatively windy day and it was a strong crosswind, and we were holding short, waiting for another airplane to land. It just so happened to be another Cessna 172. And you could see this 172 coming in, and it was wings were getting rocked all over the place, and there was these relatively large pitch changes. And, I mean, I'm just thinking, man, I don't know if I can ever conquer this whole crosswind landing thing, and I'm watching this 172 come in and fighting it. And this thing lands on the main gear. It does this huge bounce. Noses back in, slams down on the nose, the prop hits the concrete on the runway, oh, no. kicking concrete up all over the place. And, uh, they, they finally get the thing to a stop and, and pull off and shut down. And I looked at my instructor and I said, you know, maybe tomorrow, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think I'm going to
0: pass on today's lesson. Thanks, though. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> One, the airport's probably closed now, and two, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> right,
1: exactly, yeah. exactly. I think if that person who I know most likely has more experience than me did that, then maybe we'll save this for another day.
0: Oh, yeah, without doubt. And I think you made the, the good call there because... Just seeing that can kind of mess with your kind of psyche a little bit, you know. It'd be like, all right, well, this guy already did that, so there's a likelihood of this happening, and you might be kind of in your mind more than you actually should be. So, I think that was a re- that was a good call to make.
1: Oh, absolutely! And by the way, isn't that true with aviation in general, even today, that we're big boys? You know, there's right. there's times when you look out there at the weather and you go, you know what, tomorrow looks like a better day than today. We don't yeah. we don't need to go.
0: Man, you, uh, you're you speaking to my career right now because I'm a freight dog flying single pilot 135. So we have really strict timelines and a lot of times the weather does not work out in our favor. So <laughs> it can definitely sure. be interesting oh, and I've learned a lot. It has taught me a lot and I've said no a couple of times and I've kind of figured out what my limitations are by trial and error. And it's it's been an interesting experience, but I definitely agree with you. Private pilots – training lessons, even commercial pilots to a certain extent, don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid if tomorrow looks better, just say, "Hey, let's go tomorrow. Tomorrow looks better and it's going to be. It'll work out in your favor. No one will no one will second guess safety."
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And even today, when I go with I've got a group of friends and we travel together and go places, one of the places we always go is is Telluride and go skiing and we always build in an extra day on the back end of it. So if we're gonna if we're planning on leaving on Tuesday, everybody's got their schedule cleared through Wednesday and they just know that gives us the the leeway that if Tuesday's crapped out weather wise or marginal weather that we're gonna have tomorrow to go. So we just kinda build that in and it takes a huge amount of stress off of off of me. Right. But it's also the you know, it's the right thing to do, it's the safe thing to do.
0: Oh for sure. Because, I mean, yeah, businessmen, people just have things to do. And if you don't, for general aviation to really work in someone's life and to, to get people on board, they have to understand what comes with general aviation and that it, your first plan very rarely ever works out. It's like if you plan on doing this in six days, you're really going to need eight days or maybe you have to leave a day early. So being flexible, handling adversity is, is key to having friends in aviation and just being in aviation yourself.
1: Oh, yeah, I completely agree.
0: Yeah. So when you were, uh, let's talk about more about your training now. You did you get your instrument training right after? Did you dive into that? Did you gr- wait till you graduated high school? What was next after your private pilot? So I was
1: still in high school when I started my instrument training, and as I recall back in the day, it uh, you had some minimum number of hours you had to have before you could start actually your instrument training. Oh, wow. I don't remember offhand. Yeah, I don't remember offhand what that was. That that changed shortly after I finished, but I wanted to say it was like 150 hours or something like that. So, you know, I still had a little bit of time to uh, fly off before I got to the point where I could start doing my instrument training. But we did actually do that in the uh, 172. My dad was ahead of schedule on me with reference to that. And then I did my instrument training. And right when I graduated from high school, I came out of that with my uh, instrument rating. Oh, nice. So timing-wise, that's about when it was. So, And and interestingly, we had just finished up with the Cessna 172 at that point. And, you know, looking back at it, we kind of made a pretty big step. We went from a the Cessna 172 to a uh, Piper Seneca 2. Oh, nice. So, yeah, twin-engine Piper. And um, we started – so I finished my instrument rating in my senior senior year in high school. And then that summer, we got the uh, Seneca, so I got my multi-engine rating in that aircraft.
0: Nice. Yeah, I remember the. I actually did my multi-engine training in a Seneca II in Edmondo, North Carolina, K E Q Y or E Q Y, and it was like you said, it's a big jump going from a 172 or even an Arrow. I went to an Arrow with hundred and nine or 200 horsepower straight into a Seneca. And I mean, yeah. it, it was intense. It was, it was not, I want to say it was necessarily a big learning curve, but just things happened a lot faster. And it was a lot of fun. And I remember, I, I felt, I remember sitting in that plane and just the smile on my face because I could feel my career progressing and I could finally see I'm getting into bigger airplanes. And I thought I was in the biggest and coolest airplane I've ever seen. And I was able to fly the plane down with my instructor to do maintenance, to help out with my flight school. And we flew down to someplace in Georgia. And then our our chief pilot, not chief pilot, but our chief flight instructor and another, the guy that owned the actual flight school flew down their Cessna 340. And I still had this big, bad smile on my face. Like I was a really cool pilot. And then the 340 pulls up and it's like twice the size. It's like sitting taller oh, than the Seneca. And I'm like, oh man, it was like a real reality check. Like, dang, I still got somewhere, I still got places I need to be.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, I remember sitting in the Seneca thinking, man, this is, this is the greatest thing ever. You see how big this airplane is? Right, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm so big and bad. I can fly this bad boy anywhere. And then, yeah, then you see the caravan come by sitting like eight feet taller than you. You're like, Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. But you know, Hey, isn't that true of aviation though? That, There's always somebody with something bigger and better.
0: Oh, without a doubt. And I actually had a very sobering moment about that a couple months ago. I was I fly PC-12 right now, and I love flying the PC-12. But even after you fly, after you flew the Seneca for a while, you were looking at bigger and better planes like we're talking about. I'm flying the Seneca, and I'm looking at bigger and better planes. I see a Gulfstream, like, oh, man, I really wish I could fly that. But I always have to remember that there's a guy sitting right seat in a 172 that has, that's been instructing for eight hours that sees my PC 12 and wants to fly that. So I always got to keep it in perspective of where I'm at and how cool my job actually is.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you just got to, you have to enjoy the moment that you're in. You know, that we all started in Cessna 172s. Right. You know, we didn't, we didn't, nobody started in PC 12s. Right. You know, I don't care if you, I don't know if, I don't care if it could legally be done.
0: Yeah, it's, that'd be wild. You know, it's
1: rea- <laughs> yeah. It's realistically not gonna happen. So we all start there. We all it's all part of the learning process and you just have to enjoy and embrace each part of it along the way. Right. And uh and enjoy enjoy what it is.
0: Talking about starting in PC twelves, I can tell you why it's a terrible idea to start in a PC twelve. It is a fantastic plan. I love it from beginning to end. But that plane, if you fully stall that airplane, it is probably the scariest thing you'll ever see in your life. We don't do it in our training. We obviously, commercial pilot, you just stall until you see your first sign of a stall, right? But you go on YouTube, and I, I, when you're done with this conversation or anyone listening to this right now, I encourage you to type in PC-12 stall and just see what it what it does. It is It is crazy. They built the plane... The T tail obviously is not very forgiving sometimes in stalls, and they built a plane and they realized that the stall characteristics were less than great, so instead of going back from square one to fixing the airplane, they just put a push shaker and a stick shaker in so if the plane was ever to a stall moment, the plane would never let itself stall because they know that the any pilot probably won't be able to get themselves out of that situation, sure. Yeah, sure. it's, it's pretty wild. I, I would encourage you to go look at it. It might, uh, might scare you a little bit from the PC-12, but <laughs> it's, it's a great airplane. It can do so much stuff. You just got to be on top of it. Just like any other plane though. Right.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So what did you think about your instrument training? Did you enjoy it? Did you think it was hard? Did you have any like crazy expectations for it being really hard? Did you have a good instructor? Well,
1: you know, that was back in the day of the six-pack instrument layout. So, right. you know, most of, most of the people today are flying with, with glass panels, I would imagine. Um, but uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed the instrument rating, and I think that's the one that really opens up the world of aviation for you as a pilot. You know, that's the one that allows you to really use the airplane to its fullest extent. It allows you to interact in the airspace system In a way that uh, you get the full gamut of center frequencies and towers and regional departures and departure controls and all this, all this different interaction with all these different players. And it just really opens up the world of aviation to you for the with the instrument rating.
0: Oh, it definitely does. You can just do so much more with your instrument rating. I mean, on a low on a cloudy day when you're a private pilot afraid of the clouds, you can go and you can leave legally and you can go fly to wherever you want to where the weather is nice. So, instrument rating, I would right. agree with you. It opens up so many doors for you. It's just as important as your commercial rating or anything else, and even more so because you can. I've said this before. You either can or you can't fly instrument. You know, you can't really you can't fake it. There's instrument pilot is going to bring out the best and the worst in you as a pilot, because as you know, you fly IFR, not everything goes to plan and things change very fast. So you have to, like we said, with the PC-12, you got to be on top of the airplane at all times and you got to be on top of the weather. You got to be on top of a lot of things, ATC, holding, clearances, all this kind of stuff.
1: Right. Absolutely. That's what when people contact me and ask me about aviation and getting their license and things like that. And a lot of people will follow up and say, Hey, I, you know, I talked with you a year ago. I went and got my private pilot's license and I'm really enjoying it. I always say to them, okay, now is the time to really dive in and get the instrument rating, whether or not you think you're, you need it or you're going to use it. Go get it. Cause mm-hmm. that is, I, I think it's personally the single most important rating that there is out there.
0: I would agree. And it's also one of the ratings where, like I said earlier, it's like you have to keep your skills up. You can't expect to take four weeks or a month or two months off and then go fly a, an ILS down to minimums. You're going to be rusty and you're going to be all over yeah. the place. So you got to, not only do yep. you need to get it, but you need to stay proficient in it and you need to go fly in the clouds. Clouds are not as scary. Yep. I mean, thunderstorms can be scary, but just fly through the clouds, make sure you're doing everything safe and make sure you're doing everything legal and keep yourself to where you feel comfortable flying IFR because it's just not something you want to get out of sync with. I even take five. Why well, we uh, my schedule at work is ten days on, four and a half days off. And even after my four and a half days off, if I haven't been flying, I'm kind of like, all right, here we go. Let's see what we got. <laughs> you know, right, so you got right. You got to stay on top of it. It can it can go away fast. Yep, it sure can. Yeah,
1: you're really concentrating on that first departure, aren't you?
0: Yeah, you definitely are. Yeah, especially when you that's when your company calls you to go to JFK or goes to the Northeast or go to like Atlanta Hartsfield or something. like that. You're like, oh great, start this on my first day back. <laughs> or Mexico Mexico is always fun too they still don't have many ILS approaches it's usually VORs and DME approaches
1: hey as long as it's not an NDB
0: NDB, ADF you know I have never had to do an NDB or an ADF approach so (laughs) if I ever got that I'd be like yeah I need something else (laughs) go ahead and talk about you're an instrument rated pilot what did you do after your instrument training did you immediately start flying in the clouds or did you start training for your commercial pilot what was next
1: So I got the uh, instrument rating, and then we had transitioned to different aircraft, so we were into the Seneca II, got my multi-engine rating, and I then went off to college and went to uh, Indiana University down in Bloomington. Nice. And and so I would come back on occasion when my dad was going to fly somewhere, I would come back and and help him fly to Fort Wayne or wherever it was, and uh, then in the summer, I would uh fly the airplane as much as I could in the summer and go and family vacations to the extent that we could and and those kind of things. But then also on that first summer back I got my commercial rating. Oh, so cool. I Had my yep, yeah, so I had my commercial, my multi, my instrument rating when I
0: started my sophomore year in college. Nice. What airport did you do this out of in Indianapolis? Uh Eagle Creek Airport. Okay, cool. That's so on the west side, yeah. So you did all your training, part 61, then at an airport just in western Indianapolis, and you didn't do any flying at Indiana. Did you just do flying in the summertime, like you said, or did you have a lot of times where you could kind of sneak back home and fly?
1: Uh, there was a fair number of times that I would sneak home and help my dad fly somewhere. If he was going to go to a conference out in Washington, D.C., I got the opportunity to land at uh, Washington National several times. Nice. Uh, the Oh, yeah, which... You know, that's not really available to us anymore. No, definitely that, not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: That's highly frowned upon. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So that, that was quite an experience. And of course we didn't, you know, didn't think anything about it back then. You, you were coming in landing and there's the Smithsonian and the White House and the Pentagon and all that. And you just follow the river approach on in and land. It was no big deal.
0: Yeah. It's limited now to mainly airlines, I'm pretty sure, or people that have to be there.
1: Yeah. There's a whole program that you have to go through to be able to get in there. And it it involves actually departing, I think, from an improved airport. And you actually have to have a, uh, I believe a TSA agent or a federal agent actually check your airplane out and close it for you and watch you depart. There's a whole process you have to go through. Yeah. It's quite difficult. It's really unrealistic to think that you know (laughs) most of us normal folks would have the ability to do that.
0: Right. So cool. So now that you are a commercial rated pilot, you, did you just kind of, after college, did you kind of full blow to start flying?
1: Well, what happened to me was, you know, at at that time, the actually, the the airlines were talking about doing a fair amount of hiring. And uh, I thought that that was, at the time, I thought that was the route I wanted to go. And I thought it would be nice to fall back with a business degree from uh, Indiana and be an airline pilot. And then, you know, when I retired, I'd still have that business degree and could do something with it. But uh, as we all probably remember, the movie Top Gun came along, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think I watched Top Gun one too many times, and I decided <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to be Tom Cruise and and fly fighters. So uh, it just so happened that that I had made acquaintance with a guy in Indianapolis who had told me about the Air National Guard, oh, cool. and he actually. Yeah. So he flew F-4s for the Air National Guard. And, uh, I would sit and listen to his stories all day long. I mean, there was, there was nothing that, that guy uh, would say that wasn't, I wasn't hanging on every word that he would, he would talk about. And he would tell me <laughs> about these dog fights he was in or going out to the bombing range. And I tell you, I mean, I was, I'm probably at his feet just slobbering like a little puppy listening to every word he said. That's awesome. And, uh, so he so he alerted me to that fact of the Air National Guard. and there's there was actually two units of uh, Air Guard in Indiana. There was Terre Haute and Fort Wayne. So uh, I had put my application into both of those units, and I was ended up being it's quite competitive. and I ended up being an alternate at Terre Haute for one year. And then uh, the year after I graduated from college, I ended up getting selected at Fort Wayne to uh become to go to pilot training for them. Nice. So yeah, so usually they, they hire from within. They'll usually hire some uh buddy who's been working on the in the maintenance department and wants to go fly or is already flying and and it just so happened that they, they picked one guy from within and they picked one guy that that didn't have any you know military experience and sent both of us off to uh, pilot training together. And basically what they do is they they loan you out to the Air Force, so you become an asset of the Air Force during your training. And then when your training is complete, they send you back to the unit. And the way the Air National Guard works is that we have the same flying requirements as the active duty Air Force, but we didn't have all the the extra duties. So we basically flew, and after we flew, we left. And so a lot of those guys, yeah a lot of those guys end up being airline pilots so they would do their airline gig and then they'd come back and on their days off they'd come out to the garden and fly and then occasionally you'd have deployments that you'd go anywhere basically around the world and of course with all the recent conflicts the the Air Guard units have been getting quite a bit more use.
0: Yeah for sure. What was the world. training like for a guy that's already had his commercial rating his instrument rating like did you just pretty much start it from scratch to learn how to fly like the way that they wanted yeah. to teach you or what what happened?
1: That's exactly what happens. So everybody starts from from the same point, regardless of what your skill set is. And we started out with uh, a uh, a screening process in Hondo, Texas, outside of uh, San Antonio, yep. and it was basically in a Cessna one seventy two, and you had to you went up with an instructor and you had to solo within I can't remember what the number of flights was it was four or five flights it wasn't very many for somebody who didn't have any exposure oh, to wow. the flying beforehand Yeah that's not very and, many at all Yeah not at all so basically they were just checking to make sure that you could you could potentially fly and and hack it and that you wouldn't get air sick every time you got in an airplane right. and, and that you could, that you could handle the pace of the academics because it's a pretty rigorous pace as well. Um, and then I went to, uh, at that time, they called it UPT undergraduate pilot training, which was a year long program. I did that at Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas.
0: Okay. And that is a
1: combination. Yeah. So, well. <laughs> Curiously, what have you been there for?
0: Well, let me rephrase. I've been to Del Rio International Airport just south okay, and west gotcha. of the field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Never Absolutely. been to Laughlin. Absolutely.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, an inter- definitely an interesting place. Yeah. Um, they, their airspace is very free. There's, there's, there's really nothing going on in that airspace down there. There's nobody, no airliners traversing it. Not it's just all. literally out. <laughs> yeah, it's literally out in the middle of nowhere on the border of Mexico, but it was a great place for, for flight training. The weather was generally pretty good. And, uh, it's a combination of it starting out with the T-37 for basically half the year. And then the second half of the year goes to the T-38. So really coming in there with, with, prior experience, the the Cessna 172 thing at Hondo was was not difficult. The T thirty seven was um, it had its challenging moments. There were things you did like formation flying, which we didn't do in general aviation or don't do, at least regularly in general aviation. So that that was definitely different. But when you get into the T38, everybody has pretty much equalized at that point because that thing is just really a rocket ship. That's awesome. it is a, oh yeah. It's an extremely fast airplane yeah. and uh, very, very high performance. So at that point, all of your other classmates had kind of caught up with you and you were pretty much on equal terms at that point. Yeah.
0: The T30, is that the supersonic uh, trainer? Yes. Okay. I was is. making sure I had the right one. Yeah. I uh, did it. Have you ever been to Victoria, Texas? Yes, yep. yeah I did a lot of aerial survey in the Victoria Texas area, and I was just shocked to see how much of a military training airport that actually is and how there's t38s there's Learjets just going in and out of that airport all the time.
1: yeah, yeah well theres is, there is just a lot of military activity going down in the in the Texas Oklahoma Mississippi area between the Navy and the Air Force yeah, there's a, really lot flight,
0: a lot of a lot of flight
1: training going on.
0: There definitely is. Yeah, the south seems to be a hotbed for military training. There's MOAs all over the place.
1: Exactly. Which is why I usually go I usually fly around those by the way when I'm down in <laughs> yeah, that area. Well, you really
0: know what's going on in those areas, probably too. So you're like, yeah, I'll stay I'll stay out of the way.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: That's funny. When you uh so you did your T38 training and everything like that, like after you flew the T38, did they tell you what plane you got to fly? Did you get to choose? Like what happened next?
1: So that that's the nice part about the Air National Guard. So you get you get selected by your unit. So I had gotten selected by Fort Wayne, which at the time was flying F-4s, and then they were transitioning to the F-16 right when I started my training. So when I finished my training, as long as the instructors thought I was going to be capable, I was going to go to the F-16. Okay. And that's how, then that's how it ended up playing out. So uh, we ended up, uh, the, the other guy that got selected um, to go train with that unit, we both went through the same class all the way together and, uh, then went to F-16 training at, uh, in Tampa, Florida at MacDill Air Force Base.
0: What's flying the F-16 like?
1: Oh man, it's, uh, it is a fantastic aircraft. Yeah. It is, uh, it is not lacking power.
0: No, definitely not.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, the, and, and fly-by-wire is a really, uh, neat, neat deal and, um, so there's very little trimming that takes effect on the you know you've got the the trim wheel on the on your stick which only moves very slightly by the way yeah and it gives it gives inputs into the computers and the computers determine what you want to do and and uh determine what the airplane's capable of doing and and gives you that feedback but uh, very little trimming occurs uh the flaps are programmed automatically the leading edge flaps as we called them those are programmed automatically. The engine is is fully FADEC, We would call it today. We, got, we didn't call it that back then. But you know, if you want to go fast, you push it forward. If you want to go faster, you you bring the throttle out and push it into afterburner. And yeah. and you hear the little fuel counters spin up like crazy, and you think oh, the the taxpayers are paying for this fuel. So I don't <laughs> really care. Oh well, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Got to have fun while you're in it, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I remember coming in from uh, a training mission out of uh, Tampa, coming in over the, the Tampa Bay Bridge there into the into the Bay Area, and uh, I was on the wing of my instructor. So you, typically you would go out, and your instructor would be in one airplane, and you'd be in another, and you'd go up and fight with each other or, or go to the bombing range together, whatever the case may be. There was well, very few times where actually you had the two-seater Right. And you had the instructor in the back. So I remember coming in one of my very early solo flights on the wing of my my uh, instructor and uh, missiles on each wing. You know, oh, are they're, gosh. They're not, yeah. And, Don't hit the wrong
0: button, uh, yeah. right?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. But, uh, you know, I'm 24 years old. I'm flying an F-16. I'm like, yeah. It does not get any better than this. <laughs> That's, uh,
0: Tom Cruise and Maverick would be very happy for you, very proud of you. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: So, what uh, do you have any some cool flights in the F sixteen? Did you get called in active duty at all? Did you mainly stay in the United States? Like, what all happened with that?
1: So, we did a fair amount of uh, stuff around the around the country with uh, going out to. Uh, Dave Mothin and Tucson, and a, a lot of different bombing ranges and shooting all the different kind of weapons, short of the nuclear weapons, but all the different kind of stuff that the F sixteen can shoot. But as far as going out in actual deployments, I did a, a deployment out to Egypt and actually flew the airplane back from Egypt oh, wow. uh, over and then over the Atlantic.
0: How long did it take you to fly that?
1: So what we ended up doing was we ended up landing in the uh, Azores, that which are about four hundred miles off the coast of Portugal. So we okay. went from Central Egypt, all the way across the middle of the Med, out into uh, the Azores. And that was probably, uh, I think that was probably around a seven to eight-hour flight.
0: Is the F-16 comfortable for a seven-hour flight? Uh, No, it's not.
1: (laughs) not. So that's a long time to be sitting in a pretty confined space. I'm sure. Uh, And then you're you're constantly refueling. So we were in a four-ship. We had a KC-135 tanker, I, I actually think a couple of them with us. And you're constantly cycling through refueling because you want to you you want to have all your tanks full so that if you actually have a situation where you can't pull fuel from one of your fuel cells or your your external tanks, that you at least have enough fuel to get somewhere.
0: Right, that so makes you're lot of
1: sense. yeah. So you're constantly cycling through the boom, which mentally is exhausting it's not sure. terribly hard work but it's not like you can just sit there and you know eat a candy bar and sit on the boom <laughs> right you know you're always paying attention so um it, it's a long it, it's a long trip
0: yeah i can only imagine you guys probably slept well after that one.
1: Oh yeah it, it felt good to uh to get on the ground that's for sure
0: how many years did you spend in the Air national guard
1: i spent 10 years there did yep. you
0: ever think about going into the airlines after that, or what was kind of your mentality when you're when you got out of the Air National Guard?
1: I had um, that was originally the goal, and what happened to me in the in the military was is that I kind of grew tired of looking at the the pay chart and grade and time in service and and looking at that number and going, you know what? No matter what I do, as long as I don't screw up, that's going to be my that's my livelihood mm-hmm. and I wanted something that actually offered a little bit more of a um, opportunity for advancement, so to speak. Yeah,
0: no, I know and, what you mean. You
1: know, airlines are that same way. I mean, airlines, I, I'm not begrudging them and I think it's a, it's a, it's a, I think a fantastic career, uh, but just the whole mindset of just fitting into a, a, a grade and a, a time and service. And that was your determined, your, your income, I, I wanted something different. So okay. so that's when I decided to go out and, and pursue the business world and and look for what opportunities might be there.
0: Did you continue flying when you were doing that? Did you buy a plane on the side? Did you fly with your dad, Seneca, or did you just give up flying at that point, or did you, did you keep going?
1: So we had, um, so we, at that time, we had gotten rid of the Seneca, and we had a, a P210, a Cessna P210, okay and we I would fly that on occasion, but I'll tell you, when you're flying an F-16 regularly, <laughs> flying anything else becomes a little bit mundane. Especially
0: going to a two ten. So, I know they're fast, but like it's definitely not an F-16. <laughs>
1: right. Exactly. So. That's exactly right. So yeah, I mean, I did a little bit of flying at that time. We had uh, our our kids. Were, we had two kids, and they were relatively young, so we would take the P-210 and go down to to Disney or go down and visit my wife's parents or something like that. But it wasn't something that we would do all that regularly.
0: Right. And now you say a pressurized two ten, if anyone doesn't know what a P two ten is, it's uh what is there a big difference like dude, would you take that up to like flight levels or would you fly it at like sixteen thousand? Like what was the benefit of having a pressurized two ten?
1: Yeah, so you would get up into eighteen thousand, you know, flight level one eight zero or nineteen thousand somewhere up in there. And it trued out at, you know, true airspeed up there was for a little single engine airplane was somewhere around 190 knots or something like that. That's pretty good. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're in a pressurized cabin. So the, so the air inside the cabin, the, the elevation of the cabin is maybe 5,000 feet where the airplane's at 19,000 feet. Right. So you don't have to wear an oxygen mask. Which is nice years and yeah and, and all that
0: yeah i've just i've always heard about the p210 but i never i fly a pilatus which just pressurize now and i just kind of think of like flying at like 280 290 and then i didn't know if they actually went to the flight levels or they just kind of hung around like 15 16
1: yeah the problem is is that they take a pretty darn long time to climb
0: <laughs> i can imagine
1: <laughs> so yeah. So, it, you know, it takes you a, while, a little while to get to 20,000 feet anyway. And I, I don't yeah. think you, I didn't really have any interest in going much higher than
0: that. No, definitely not. Even in the Pilatus, if you go close to its service ceiling, it you can kind of tell that it doesn't want to be there. It's like, uh, I'm happier down lower. Right, yeah, right, I've, right. I'd, it wasn't a pressurized 210. It was a turbo 206. And I just had to climb to 12,500 feet. I think it took me about an hour to get up that high. It was for aerial survey. So I had like a huge camera in the back and I had, we're pretty much close to as, as full as the plane could be. And I just, I I was in Chicago airspace and they were yelling at me because they had to vector me around the departures and the approach. <laughs> and this is all for one photo. So it took me an hour to climb to a 12.5 for one photo. And then I had to send right back down. <laughs> Chicago approach. Oh my goodness. Not happy with me at all. <laughs>
1: They don't seem to be very happy most of the time anyway.
0: Yeah, especially when you uh, mix weather. in. I always, whenever you're flying through the, the country and you can hear there's weather going on in Chicago and their pilots are complaining about the route and they're getting, Chicago's not too happy. Right. So cool. So you did some flying in the 210. You're probably missing your F-16 at that time. Did you ever think about going back to the National Guard or were you kind of really happy that you got out and you kind of went the business world away?
1: Yeah, well, I I think, well, first of all, it's kind of a younger man's game. So at that point, my kids were starting to get a little bit older. I was gone an awful lot. Uh, We had several deployments. We had gone to Panama for an extended period and did some drug interdiction stuff there, which was really fun. Um, But just all of the deployments had started to kind of take its toll. And the other thing that they had done, um, which... As a young guy, you think it's great. As you start to get a little bit older, you're like, I don't know if this is all that great. And that was the, the night vision goggle thing. So we would, yeah. where we, we would fly with night vision goggles, lights out, low altitude, uh, single pilot jets, you know, moving at high speeds close to the ground. And it, it's, it is a very high workload environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, flying the F 16, if anybody's gotten on flight sim or whatever i'm sure f-16s are there but flying the f-16 in and of itself just from point a to point b isn't difficult but flying the f-16 and deploying weapons is a completely different ball game so <laughs> i don't want to burst any bubble bubbles of anybody out there who's like oh i fly the f-16 all the time and I, I take off and land you know no problem and i go yeah well that's that's great so how about night vision goggles 500 feet Five hundred and forty knots.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah,
1: yeah, shooting a Maverick missile to ten miles away. So give that one a try. So <laughs> well, as we started transitioning into doing those kind of things, I can get a little bit older. I would think it was in my early thirties at that time. It was like, you know, this is probably uh, a good time for me to step away and look for uh, another option. So, um, and and that's what I did. And that at that time, that was two thousand and one. So it was it was right prior to uh, 9/11 mm-hmm. and um, my dad's business was uh, in a position where he needed some help and the opportunity was there for me to uh, come into that so that's what I did at the time, and that's where I'm still at today.
0: Nice. Well, it's probably a good time to get out of aviation, though. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I know a lot of people, 2011 kind of was the worst time for them to get into aviation, and they're just graduating college, and they just started hiring, but then obviously September 11th happened, and they were immediately furloughed, and all this kind of stuff happened, so not the worst time to get out of aviation at all. Absolutely. Yeah. So you guys are flying a pressurized 210, and then now what kind of, what was the progress in planes? Did you go through a couple other planes before you got to where you're now, or what was the process of buying those
1: Sure. So we we did. So so that when I came into the business, uh, I started flying the P210 and we were literally flying the wings off of it, uh, just going all over the place. And it quickly became evident that we needed a little more capability. So we bought a uh, Cessna 414A, so nice. one of the later models, Cessna 414. So uh, a cabin-class airplane, uh, twin-engine, pressurized cabin. And, um, it, you know, remember we were talking about the Piper Seneca, how we thought, gosh, this airplane's so big. Yeah. yeah thought, <laughs> when I got in the 414, I was like, wow, this airplane's really big. <laughs> I know, cool. right? It,
0: yeah.
1: It, uh, when when i pull up on the ramp people notice right
0: yeah they're like i'm in the 414 what's up
1: <laughs> right exactly yeah. and that was a fantastic airplane we we flew that airplane for uh i'd say probably close to 3 years and uh then it had kind of outgrown its capabilities as well and we're looking for something else to uh to move up into and and looked at a variety of aircraft looked at the PC12 and looked at the TBMs, you know, some of the single engine turboprops and kind of looked at the King Airs and and you know King Airs are nice cabins not necessarily aren't necessarily known for being all that fast and mm-hmm. then uh we, we wanted something with a little bit of speed so uh, we we stumbled upon the the MU2 a, a twin engine turboprop it's got the, the Garrett uh turboprop engines on them uh big four blade props on the later model ones and, uh, it's a, it's a very fast and fuel efficient turboprop. And we bought a, a long body, uh, one of the bigger ones and, which is the same size as like a King Air 200 cabin. So it's okay. a nice, creamy, uh, interior and, uh, immediately sent it off and had a new paint and interior done on it. Nice. And, uh, flew that for, uh, flew that for about eight years.
0: Oh, wow. Nice.
1: Oh yeah. Did yeah. Did you enjoy new- flying we- the Mewtwo? I, I, we loved it. I yeah. loved it.
0: I flew a uh, a Turbo Commander, which is kind of the same concept of the engines and the style of a body. You know, kind of see a Mewtwo sure. every once in a while. i like, oh, it's kind of like a Turbo Commander. But yeah, it's kind of like the same one. Obviously, it didn't have the turbines or anything like that. But I remember just they're very distinct-looking airplanes.
1: Oh, yeah, very, very much so. And, and there is no doubt when you pull up on the ramp because the things are so darn loud on the outside.
0: Yeah, yeah they are. <laughs>
1: We we call it the MU2 salute, and that's somebody standing outside with their fingers in in their ears.
0: <laughs> yeah, whenever I see a MU2 pull up on the ramp, I always run inside and still plug my ears.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, yep. absolutely. I, I mean, I would feel bad. At our current airport, we have this this big canopy that we uh, that we get pulled under and, and start under, and of course the sound just echoes through there. Oh, yeah. And I would always tell the I would always tell the line guys, you know. Hey, you don't need to put me underneath the canopy because, <laughs> you know, it, it goes from like 140 decibels to like 220, you know, oh, it's man, just so yeah. loud.
0: I want you to hear in 20 years, so please let me go somewhere else. <laughs>
1: exactly. But that was a great airplane for us, and we actually, we enjoyed it so much, we bought a, a short body MU-2. I guess we were looking for a project, so we bought a, an airplane that was kind of ratted out and – um Ended up going through a complete refurbishment process where we completely redid the panel and, and did the Garmin 600, all the Garmin stuff in it and new interior, new paint. And it was really a, a neat looking aircraft. And, um, so we had the long body and the short body. And nice. uh, I would fly both of those kind of interchangeably. Cool. And, uh, in, enjoyed both. I mean, quite frankly, I probably enjoyed the long one a little bit more because there was very, very little penalty in terms of speed. right? And you got a, a much larger uh, airplane, a much bigger uh, cabin. It was just a little more comfortable.
0: Yeah, for sure. And comfortable is, is crucial and key when you're flying across the country or flying long flights.
1: And at that point, too, is where when you transition into the turbine aircraft, you really start transitioning into the point where you are going to go need annual training. So you're going to go get recurrent in a flight simulator type environment, usually. Right. And um, even if it's not in the MU-2, it was uh, regulated to the point that you had to go every year and get training. But uh, even in the King Airs and the Conquest and some of these other aircraft, you'll see that insurers are demanding that the, the owners go and get annual training.
0: Yep, which is probably a good thing because if you don't require that, then they won't ever do it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. That's exactly right. That, that's a great opportunity to practice all of your single engine stuff. It's a, it's a great opportunity to, to network and ask the questions that you, you know, you're scratching your head. You're like, this now, if I'm in this kind of situation, do I do that or do I do this? And right. They also share a lot of, of user information of trends that they've been seeing and, and, uh, either trends in, in pilots training deficiencies or trends in the aircraft uh, reliability or maintenance thereof. So it's, right. it's just a, it's a win-win for everybody. Oh, without a doubt.
0: It might be a rough week for you. It might be a hard week, but it's definitely worth it in the long run. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. So how long do you have MU-2s for before you transition to a jet after that, or do you have a couple other planes before you guys got a jet?
1: Yeah, so, so then in 2013, we got rid of the uh, MU-2s after having those for about uh, eight years. Uh, ended up putting a couple thousand hours, uh, between those two aircraft, uh, flying around, around the country. So we, I mean, we were going all over the place and, uh, started looking for, uh, again, you, you know, as you use aviation more and more, you, you need more capability because you realize what an airplane can do for you. And we felt like we need a little more capability. We need a little more speed. I wanted to get up a little bit higher. Um, and so we, we looked at, what we could move up to, and and the Beechcraft Premier was the perfect choice for us. It offered a really nice combination of cabin size versus efficiency and speed. So it's a 450-knot aircraft. It has a cabin that's really quite large, and yet it's still relatively fuel efficient uh, for a jet, particularly yeah. once you get it up high, which is where jets really perform well.
0: That's a crucial part of buying a jet or any plane is looking to the fuel efficiency because that's where all your money's going to go.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So today you can buy an older legacy type jet for not much money. But if you look at the fuel burn, you're going to go, wow. That is, uh, those are big numbers.
0: <laughs> yeah. And in a couple of years, you'll be able to, you'll save money by buying the newer jet.
1: Yes. That's correct. So this, this premiere, we, we bought it out of, uh, southern England. Oh, cool. And yes. So my dad and I actually went over and, and picked it up and we flew around Europe for a couple of weeks before bringing it back, which was uh, a lot of fun and kind of a great father son trip.
0: So yeah, sure. he doesn't
1: really fly. He, he doesn't fly anymore, but it was kind of nice to, to do a full circle that. You know, my dad got me involved in aviation and and was able to to, uh, put me in a position to one day, you know, go over to Europe and fly him around in a jet and take him to go see all these places and then come back, you know, across the Atlantic. So it was really a a very, oh, a very memorable, of course, it's a bucket list trip for any pilot, right? To bring an airplane, (laughs) either to or from uh, Europe, so... Uh, that, but then the added benefit of bringing being able to have my dad along
0: was a lot of fun. That's awesome. So, how long have you guys had this jet for? You said you bought it in what 2013.
1: Yeah, so this is year four of the jet. So I've put about uh, put about 800 hours on it oh, so nice. far.
0: Are you guys happy with it? Are you looking for a new plane sometime in the future? You think you'll kind of stick this one out for a while?
1: Yeah, we we've been real happy with the aircraft. It's uh, definitely lived up to uh, all of our expectations. Uh, it's been extremely reliable, and it. I mean, it's really a it, it's a really little time machine. It uh, The the things you can do in That's that awesome. thing. Oh, yeah. The other day we had uh, a meeting in Las Vegas at, at 10 a.m. We left Indianapolis at 7. And with the time changes, even in, with the fuel stop, we landed in Las Vegas at like 8.45 a.m. <laughs> and, uh, you know, still to our meeting. And then later on that day, we flew up to Montana for more meetings. So That's it's awesome. amazing what you can do. And it it's uh, something that moves along.
0: Aviation is such a great accessory for businesses, for just anyone that wants to get where they're going. And even as we're talking about general aviation, I know a lot of businesses don't really understand the, the need and what general aviation can do and how buying a jet can actually save you money from buying airline tickets and everything like that. Because if you think about it as how much that jet saves you time and how much, va- any if you value your time more than you value, say, buying an airplane or stuff like that, it can actually come out to be in the plus.
1: Well, yeah. And it, what actually happens, people don't, people read in the newspapers about, people flying around in their jets and how decadent it is and, and all these kind of things. But we're, really, that's not the case at all. It allows us to be incredibly efficient with our time. And our business is such that we don't get the opportunity to go to the major cities. You know, we don't do work in Atlanta and Charlotte and Chicago. You know, we do work in Billings, Montana yeah. and, you know, Roswell, New Mexico, oh, man. places that you yeah, you can't get there from Indianapolis without several stops and probably a big drive involved. Yeah. And for you to go to, you know, for us to go to Roswell, New Mexico for a meeting, it's going to be a three day affair. It's going to be a day to get out there. It's going to be a day for the meeting and it's going to be a day to return. Whereas in the jet, we can do it all in one day.
0: Right. Get in, get out, and go on to the next meeting. Make some more money. Yep, that's exactly right. I've been to Roswell before, and a couple of things on that is I was. Very disappointed that I didn't see any aliens and realized that it is just a retirement park, pretty much. Like, it's all old people and just smells like cow manure. And number two, the airport's yep. a graveyard. I've never seen – I mean, obviously, there are other parts of more airplanes, but there's so many planes that are parked just to sit there for the rest of their lives, like huge 747s. And they also have, um, I think they do airplane repainting there too. I think they're converting some American Airlines planes to the new paint job there. And it's just, it was really kind of sad and depressing to be there.
1: Yeah, I think they're actually stripping a lot of those airplanes down there. So yeah. they're they're sitting there and they're going to be parts.
0: Yep. sad. It's a sad place to see those airplanes. Yeah, it's kind of cool, but it's still sad at the same time.
1: Exactly. I, yeah. I think Elvis's Lockstar is, is there. By the way, if it, yeah, the the red Lockstar on one of my videos. Uh, it's titled "Where Planes Go to Die" on the departure. <laughs> yeah. You can actually see you can see the red Lockstar when I take off. Actually, another viewer had pointed it out to me. I thought it was pretty funny. I didn't that's see funny. it at the time.
0: When we were taxiing there, we landed in. a, We're flying a three ten when I flew aerial survey kind of across the country. And my buddy and I were taxiing, and the controller goes, "Hey, have you guys been here before?" We go, "No." He goes, "Well, you're taxiing past Elvis Presley's plane." I was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) thanks for telling me
1: (laughs) right right
0: so you guys bought this uh beachcraft premiere and you use it to actually film some vlogs in it too and you put these on youtube and you want to talk about a little about your channel what the name is kind of what the purpose is and what you plan for that in the future
1: yeah sure so it all kind of started with the uh, with wanting to share some of my flights with my dad and particularly in the mu2 going into uh telluride i had filmed some of those and and Uploaded them on YouTube and they were very rudimentary and uh, I really had no intention of sharing them with anyone else, <laughs> but they started getting, they started getting a little bit of traffic and, and comments and people, people started kind of, you know, following this. So, um, <laughs> it kind of spurred me on and, um, I, and I would post only videos and editing quality was suspect and we didn't have very good audio and, and didn't really have ATC audio and people still continue to just you know, love this stuff. So when I got the premiere and had picked it up over in Europe, as I said, I I filmed a lot of that trip just for my own purpose to remember it, right? Those buckles. And ended up creating some videos on that and they started to get even more traffic. So at that point, it kind of started to pick up a life of its own. Uh, At some point, GoPro actually got involved sent me a bunch of gear oh, nice. and actually a bunch of a bunch of product support which was really helpful as well and um actually have had some some tips from a, a couple professional editors that have uh suggested some things to add so That's awesome. this thing has really kind of taken on a life of its own it's on youtube it's premiere one driver if you want to find it if you search beechcraft premiere premiere one driver you'll you'll find it um but, uh, really the, the whole goal of the videos now is to inspire people to get involved in aviation. I love it. So, yeah, so, so that's what I'll try to do. So I'll, I'll try to, you know, give them a little, um, uh, a little scenery, a little bit of, uh, aircraft systems, a little bit of how ATC works. Every video I'll try to give a, just a, small amount of education. I'm not trying to preach to anybody. I'm not trying to tell somebody how to fly an airplane. I'm just like pointing out different aspects of things that, that other people might find useful. Uh, flight simmers, for flight simmers, I'll give them a lot of tips that are probably specific to the aircraft type as opposed to just in general. And um, so that they can fly the, there's actually a premiere on, um, I think, X-Plane, that uh, a lot of guys fly so oh, cool i sure yeah i share it that way and it's really kind of fun for me to do and and uh, i enjoy the uh i enjoy some of the interaction with people and i get a lot of of comments and people telling me that they're they do the uh the one the thing that i see, get that that's probably the most satisfying is that I'll get, uh, uh, we actually, my wife and I, were, I'll tell you the whole story. My wife and I were at the grocery store, and my wife's not a big fan of the video. She doesn't really understand them, and she <laughs> thinks that people that fly around in a jet should keep it to themselves. Oh, and, I can see
0: that. Yeah, I know what she means. Yeah, Sure. Yeah. So there's always a little bit of, you know, I'm I,
1: I'm not trying to show people that this is a guy flying his jet around. <laughs> what I'm trying to show people is that, hey, if I do this, you can do it, right. too. You know it's not that difficult to takes some little of a dedication to get there, but anyway, so we're at the grocery store and this this husband and wife they're a younger couple, they walk up to us and and the wife goes, "Are you on YouTube <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I could just see my wife just like, "Oh geez. Oh,
0: no. and
1: uh <laughs> and I said, "Yes, I am I said, oh I, I looked at the husband I said, "Oh, you know, I guess stereotyping right yeah. <laughs> it was the guy that was in her interest in me I said, "Hey, yeah." Uh, I said, are, are you a pilot? And he says, no. And the wife says, well, our, our son is sick with leukemia. And every time that he goes in for his treatments, he and his dad watch one of your videos because it's an hour long where they know that they're going to get away from the environment that they're in. They're going to see something different. There's not going to be any foul language or anything, you know, to be uh you know controversial or anything like that it's just a nice escape for them right so that had to feel you know bad. that that was oh yeah that that felt really good so so we walk away from that and my wife says Okay, well I'll give you that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. I know what she can mean though by that. Like there there's about ba- there's a different thing between you just shoving it in people's faces or where you actually are trying to teach people and give people an insight of what it's like to fly a jet and just kind of be like, Hey, I can do this, you can do this too. Here's what I do and here you can learn from me. So I, I I've seen your videos and I know that's kind of the mentality you take rather than just be like, Hey, I got a jet, look at this, you know?
1: Right. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. And that, and that is the whole idea. And if you go back and read through the comments, you'll see that there's people that have been inspired to either go back and get their license recurrent or actually go and get their license or pursue a career in aviation. And really that's. That's what I want to be able to do. I mean, hey, when we're, believe me, when I'm on an airliner, I want to see what's going on up front. Right. And I pretty much know what's going on up front. So, <laughs> you know, everybody else back there wants to know what's going on up for front. For sure. And, you know, on my videos, you you know what's going on up front. Definitely. So,
0: uh,
1: and, and I also try to get the, to me, the landscape of it, things, the geography and the clouds and, and all that is, is fun for me. I, I like that part of it. Definitely. And for me, the, the thing with the with the cameras is that safety of flight always comes first.
0: Oh, so, for sure, without a doubt.
1: You know, I, I'll turn the cameras on, and if they work, they work, and if they don't work, I, you know, I'm not messing with them. Oh, so, no, definitely not. Um, and you know, and and on my videos, there's there's no showboating that goes on. You know, every once in a while, somebody somebody will say, "Hey, can uh can you do a, an aileron roll in a premiere?" Like, <laughs> and I'm uh, like, uh, no. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know, and I'm not gonna find out." You yeah, know? <laughs> not at all.
0: All right, Greg, I have these rapid-fire questions for you. It's just uh, some simple aviation questions, and just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. What's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? F-16. What's a fav- What's one plane you've always wanted to fly but haven't had the chance to yet?
1: P-51 Mustang.
0: Ooh, good choice. Do you prefer long trips or short trips?
1: I prefer short trips.
0: What's your favorite city to overnight in?
1: Ooh, favorite city to overnight in. Uh, Dallas, Texas.
0: Okay, that's a good one. Airbus or Boeing? <laughs> uh, Boeing. Yeah, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite airline livery? Uh, I would say Southwest. What's the hardest approach you've ever flown?
1: Oh, I've got it on my. I got it on my videos. It's. Uh, I shot an ILS into uh, my home airport in the middle of a horrendous rainstorm with severe gusts.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, I've had a couple yeah. of those in my life too, flying freight. So <laughs> I know how that Yeah, feels. I'm sure you have. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> That's when you get on exactly. the ground and they ask you to fly back out, and you're like, uh, I want to sit here for a little bit. I need to compose myself a little <laughs> right. bit. What's the hardest check ride you've ever had?
1: I would say the uh, in the F 16, we do an emergency Sims check ride. And that uh, initial one was uh, the di- most difficult.
0: Yeah. What's the what's your one favorite thing about aviation?
1: Sharing it with friends.
0: Who in the industry would you like to meet? Sully. Sully? Sully's a good one. Yeah. I like Sully. That's a yeah. good one. What's one thing you wish you knew before you became a pilot?
1: Hmm. you have had to be rapid fire, huh?
0: I know, right? <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I'd like to keep you on your toes. Yeah,
1: yeah uh how expensive it is
0: oh my gosh that's a good one <laughs> I, just, I try to tell everyone how expensive aviation truly is but it is worth it in the long run but it is truly expensive and there's no way around that all right yeah, and the last one i have for you is what's the your favorite flight the, the best flight you've ever had maybe it was to a sweet approach a great airport sunset view what would that be
1: my best flight was wick scotland to uh actually my best flight was uh, Reykjavik Iceland to Narsarsuaq Greenland. Sweet. Landing on the uh, landing to the west so you come in through the glacier valley and make a 180 turn to land. It's spectacular. And it's That's on awesome. YouTube
0: by the way. Okay, cool. Well, I will go check it out. Now that you got us uh, wondering what it looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing.
0: All right, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you just sharing the knowledge that you have and just talking about what it was like to fly a 16s, what it's like to buy airplanes and film in your airplane, how safety always comes first. And even just to talk about your experiences and training and flying and just what you've done to get to where you are today. I encourage anyone here to go check out your videos as they are some great quality content, like you said earlier, and like that family gave you that praise in the grocery store too. So I'd encourage anyone to go check that out and just thank you for doing what you're doing. And I encourage you to keep doing it because you're doing a good job.
1: Uh, Thank you, Justin. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time to do it.
0: No problem. Uh, thanks for coming to the podcast again. I hope to talk to you soon. Likewise. Aviation Nation, that is a wrap of episode 28. Thank you guys for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. As I said earlier, share this podcast, share us on Instagram, pilot the pilot share the word. We're trying to get 10,000 followers by the end of the year. We are just a little under 2,000 away, so we need lots of help to do that. And the Aviation Nation is strong and we can do that. Guys, thank you so much. Don't forget, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot Go ahead and support us there. We're three away from our goal of thirty for the year of 2017, and you have the chance to win a four-flight subscription, a fly to wear subscription, and some awesome fly to wear swag. So you do not want to miss out on that. I want to go ahead and thank Flying Eye Sunglasses. They sent me some awesome Ray Ban style sunglasses that I'm gonna be trying out in the next couple of days. So look out for Instagram so you can see the review on those. I'm also gonna be interviewing their CEO tomorrow, so look out for that podcast as well. Hope you guys have a great day and happy flying.